Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today's our Pali Canon in English study group where we're studying the words of the Buddha in this book series, The Words of the Buddha, Volumes 2 through 13. We're in Volume 3 where we're studying Chapters 41 through Chapters 50 today. The way that we start this class is we start with a brief meditation just to kind of prepare the mind and get it ready to study the words of the Buddha. Studying the words of the Buddha is amazingly helpful for your practice because until you start learning exactly what the Buddha taught, there's no way for you to develop the mind and progress to enlightenment because otherwise you have no source. You have no way of knowing what the Buddha actually did and did not teach. So in this program and other programs that we teach, we share the words of the Buddha so that students can deeply understand what he taught, learn that, reflect on it, and then practice it and progress on this path to enlightenment. And when you're learning, it's really important to retain what you actually learn because by retaining it, then you can reflect on it outside of class and even in class, and you're more likely to be able to practice it because you've retained the teachings. So that's why we do our meditation is to help clear the mind and get it ready for the class. Now, practitioners who are studying in this program are typically meditating two or three times a day as part of their normal practice. So this meditation is just a brief little kind of top up just to kind of prepare it for the class that we're getting ready to have. And it's also kind of nice to meditate with other members of our community as a way of encouraging each other, supporting each other, motivating each other in our practice. So I would like to invite all of you to pull up a meditation cushion or a chair, whatever it is that you would like to meditate, either seated, standing, or lying in order to get ready for our class. I usually don't do too much guidance in this particular class with meditation because people tend to be a little bit further along in their practice and don't really need the guidance. But essentially what you would like to do is get your lower body comfortable, get your hands and arms comfortable in your lap, and then erect the spine so that the muscles are engaged around the spine, which keeps the mind attentive and alert during your meditation. You wouldn't want to slouch or you wouldn't want to be real rigid. You want to be in the middle where the mind can actually be engaged, active and attentive because the body is erect. This upper body is nice and erect. Once you've got your body in position, just go ahead and close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Establishing a nice, natural, consistent breath. Breathing in 
and out. Fixate the mind on the breath. The breath is the present moment. And by fixating the mind on the breath, you can build awareness of the mind or mindfulness. Anytime the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and bring the mind back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation. And then just continue with this, where you're observing the sound of the breath coming into the nose and out of the nose. Any time that you notice that the mind is not on the breath, cut it off and let it go. So after the chant, I'll just leave you guys on your own to do the work, to train the mind, to build mindfulness, concentration, and eliminate craving, desire, attachment.
As I was mentioning, we'll focus on studying chapters 41 through 50 of volume 3. If you've read the chapters before class, it really helps. You can come to class with questions and an understanding of the chapters. That way, you'll be able to engage in discussion and conversation a bit more. But if you haven't read these chapters, it's okay. You're always welcome to attend class, or if this is your first time attending class, you might not even know where to get the book from. The books are downloadable from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. There's a link for free books. You can just click on that, and you'll see the books listed there. And you can download it. You can print it after you've downloaded it. Or if you have access to Amazon, you can order it through Amazon. It's there as well. And as we progress in this program, we'll go volume to volume. We started with volume two and we'll go all the way to volume 13 
and then we'll start over from the beginning again, volume two. There's another program on Sunday and Wednesday where we use volume one, and that's called the group learning program. If you've never really studied the Buddhist teachings using the words of the Buddha, and you don't feel like you really have a firm understanding of the Buddhist teachings or even haven't really experienced much learning with them before, that would be a great program for you to start with. You're welcome to do both the group learning program and this program at the same time, but that group learning program is really geared toward helping somebody ramp up their practice in a real consistent way. This program, the teachings kind of move around from chapter to chapter, and it's not really necessarily a clean progression from beginning to end. But there's still plenty to learn here, so I'm really pleased that you guys have decided to join. We'll start with chapter 41, just kind of turn things over to the moderators, Basum and all and Nick, and all of you students, where a student will read a chapter, then I'll teach it, and then we'll open up for any questions at the end of the teaching. And the way that you would ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom through the comment section, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you might have. So I'll just turn things over to you guys so that we can go ahead and get started with our class and progress from here. Hello, teacher. The first volunteer is Manel for chapter 41. A snake has passed through feces. And what kind of person, monks, is to be considered unwholesome, not to be associated with, followed, and served? Here, some person is immoral, of unwholesome character, impure of suspect behavior, secretive in his actions, non-anesthetic through claiming to be one, not a celibate through claiming to be one, inwardly rotten, corrupt, wicked. Such a person is to be considered unwholesome, not to be associated with, followed, and served. For what reason? Even though one does not follow the example of such a person, an unwholesome report still circulates about oneself. He has unwholesome friends, unwholesome companions, unwholesome comrades. Just as a snake that has passed through feces, though it did not bite one, would smear one, so too, though one does not follow the example of such a person, an unwholesome report still circulates about oneself. He has unwholesome friends, unwholesome companions, unwholesome comrades. Therefore, such a person is to be looked upon with objection, not to be associated with, followed, and served. All right. Thank you, Manal. So this analogy or simile relates to the Buddhist teachings on cultivating wholesome friends, companions, and comrades, because this is part of the path to enlightenment, whereas if we have a lot of people into a lot of unwholesome things around us, our mind will tend to be influenced by that and go towards that direction. And if you've ever been involved in situations where maybe people are stealing or lying or having substances that cause heedlessness, you might have observed how in the past, in those kind of environments, your mind was more likely to to do those things, among other things, like wrong speech and wrong action and things like that. So the Buddha talks throughout his teachings about cultivating wholesome friends, companions, and comrades. And I will add that it's really important that as you do that, that you do that with loving kindness and compassion. That if there's anybody in your life that you're choosing to kind of move on from, you don't need to go to them and tell them that you're going to end the relationship, that you feel that they're unwholesome and you're going to move on from them or anything like that. 
that would create conflict in your life. Instead, you can just choose to kind of walk forward and continue to walk forward in your life and kind of letting go potentially of any relationships that you feel like aren't really wholesome or people who are doing some unwholesome things. And again, doing that with loving kindness and compassion is really important. And loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing others be well. Compassion is concern for the misfortune of others. So while you might choose to move on from people who are in unwholesome things, it doesn't mean we look down upon them. We don't judge them. We don't think negatively of them. We just realize that they're at a different point in their life than maybe we are. And maybe at one time we were into the same things that they were into, but maybe that isn't best for us in our life now that we're on this path and progressing forward towards enlightenment. And if these friends choose at any point to maybe learn the teachings or maybe just not even learn the teachings, but maybe they choose to walk a more wholesome life just out of a result of the experiences that they're having. And in the future, if you guys rejoin and end up being close again then wonderful but if we go to our friends who we feel like maybe are into unwholesome things and we create this conflict where we've judged them and saying that you know you're no longer a friend of mine i can't associate with you or i don't want to associate with you or i consider what you're doing unwholesome this is going to create problems and tension amongst people so you don't have to do that in order to kind of move on from somebody you can just choose to let go And that gradually allows your mind to let go and it gradually allows them to let go as well. Because what the Buddha is sharing here in this story, in this analogy, in this simile, is that if a snake passes through feces, which is essentially poop, that they may not bite you, but they'll kind of smear you, right? Because unwholesomeness around you can smear you and maybe some real world examples I might give you is like, say you know you have a friend who's into uh, using illicit drugs, you know, cocaine or methamphetamine or uh, things like this. And, you know, maybe you guys have never had any troubles with each other. You completely stay out of the drug life. You know, that stuff isn't something that you're involved in, but you just kind of hang out with this person and you spend time with them. Well, what happens one day when you're driving down the street You're in a car, you're driving, the police pull you over and they slip some bags of cocaine or methamphetamine under your seat. The car gets searched and now the police find this drugs under your seat. Well, you're going to jail and probably for a really long time. This is what the Buddha means by being smeared by the snake. That even though the snake didn't bite you, Just because you're around this type of unwholesomeness, you can get affected. Now, everything in this life is based on our decisions. That's the natural law of gamma. Cause and effect, action and result. Essentially, gamma is the results of our decisions. In that situation, we're not choosing to use drugs. We're not using drugs. But our choice that we made is to associate with unwholesomeness. And by making that choice... That's the choice that's affecting us. And what the Buddha shares throughout his teachings is that it would be wise for us to cultivate wholesome friendships. And oftentimes when you're part of a community of Buddhist practitioners, that's where your friendships end up taking place. And you start cultivating more and more friendships amongst the community of practitioners that you're practicing with. And maybe in the past, 
you did have certain friends that you were involved with and again not looking down on those people wishing them well you know thinking that you know perhaps someday maybe they can improve their life have concern for their misfortune but perhaps we just choose that this person who we've always had a great relationship with but yet is into unwholesome things it's best for us to move on or certainly create a lot of distance so that we're not associating with this person because what the Buddha is sharing is, you know, during his lifetime that when he talks about this unwholesome report circulates about oneself, what he's talking about here is the reputation. Depending on what size of city or town you live in, if we associate with a lot of unwholesomeness, then the reputation that we get is that that's what we're associating with. And if you're looking to improve your life with certain opportunities to expand your life and have some more opportunities to improve your life. If you're around unwholesomeness, you're going to find it really hard to create wholesome relationships where you can have decisions in business or other parts of your personal life in order to improve your life if you are associating with unwholesomeness. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here when he says an unwholesome report circulates about one is he's talking about one's reputation can be tainted or damaged or destroyed based on associating with unwholesomeness and unwholesome people. So I will stop here and see what questions you guys might have about this chapter. Remember, you can just put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically, and we'll make sure your question gets asked during the class. So using not to be around unwholesome friends is more of letting go than judging or aversion. Exactly. You're letting go of this person who maybe has been in your life for 15, 20 years. And, you know, it's somebody that you've just continued to spend time with and associated with. And maybe you even feel sorry for them. Uh, maybe at one time you were into those unwholesome things, but you've gotten out of it. But your mind is just holding on and holding on and hoping that they will change their ways. Sometimes what you'll find is by letting go of these types of folks letting go mentally is it actually helps them because when they start to not have people around to associate with they then kind of observe that wow i don't have any more friends that are interested in hanging around me and then that can be kind of the catalyst to propel them and motivate them into doing wholesome things where sometimes if we hold on and hold on and hold on to unwholesome friends they're also holding on and they're kind of like stuck in this pattern of unwholesomeness. And sometimes what you'll find is if you let go a year, two years, three years later, you end up bumping into that person and they've completely changed their life as a result of people kind of leaving them. So you don't have to look at it as you're judging them or looking down on them, but you're just choosing to let go and move on in your life and no longer hold on to this person or people. Yeah, thanks. Hey, uh, Manav has a question. Let's go to her. Yes, sort of a question on the same lines as uh, Basam's. Um, so wanted to find out what is the difference in someone accumulating karma because they're amongst, as a result of being amongst people who have unwholesome character based on your need to help that person overcome their unwholesomeness versus someone who keeps 
such um, individuals with unwholesome characters uh, for their own selfish indulgences. It's the same thing because if you're holding on to someone with unwholesome character, like the Buddha's talking about here, it's going to affect you. You're going to encounter problem after problem after problem potentially with this person and your mind is more likely to maybe be persuaded into that unwholesomeness or like the example that I gave where you can, in the Buddha's giving here, where you can be smeared based on having people of unwholesome character around you and this is your decisions to associate with unwholesomeness. So you shouldn't ever look at it as you need to hold on to this person in order to fix them because that's your own craving, desire, attachment, wanting to fix other people where you've got to come to the understanding like just like you have to make all the decisions yourself to improve the condition of your mind and your life on this path, each individual person has to do that too. By you holding on, it is hurting you because of your craving, desire, attachment, but it's also can actually be hurting that person, almost keeping them stuck in that unwholesome state where if you let go, it might be the motivation that they need because now they don't have friends around them and they realize that they need to clean up their character in order to find friends to associate with. So your decision to be their their friend is going to smear you as the Buddha is talking about here. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Well, no more question for the chapter teacher. Okay. The neatest volunteer is Miranda. Six aspects of karma to be understood. Monks, when it was said, karma should be understood, the source and origin of karma should be understood, the diversity of karma should be understood, the result of karma should be understood, the elimination of karma should be understood, the way leading to the elimination of unwholesome karma should be understood. For what reason was this said? One, it is volition, choices, decisions, monks, that I call karma. For having willed choices and decisions, one acts by body, speech, or mind. And what is the source and origin of karma? Contact is its source and origin. And what is the diversity of karma? There's karma to be experienced in hell. There's karma to be experienced in the animal realm. There's karma to be experienced in the realm of afflicted spirits. There's karma to be experienced in the human realm. And there's karma to be experienced in the heavenly realm. This is called the diversity of karma. And what is the result of karma? The result of karma, I say, is threefold. To be experienced in this very life, or in the next rebirth, or on some subsequent occasion. This is called the result of karma. And what, monks, is the elimination of karma? With the elimination of contact, there is the elimination of karma. This noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of unwholesome karma. Namely, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. When monks, a noble disciple, thus understands karma, the source and origin of karma, the diversity of karma, the result of karma, the elimination of karma, and the way leading to the elimination of unwholesome karma, he understands this penetrative spiritual life to be the elimination of karma. When it was said, Kama should be understood. The source and origin of Kama should be understood. The diversity of Kama should be understood. The result of Kama should be understood. The elimination of Kama should be understood. The way leading to the elimination of unwholesome Kama should be understood. 
It is because of this that this was said. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So this is some details about the natural law of gamma, some very specific details, not about the results, but about kind of how gamma comes to be. So this first point that the Buddha is making about gamma is, it is volition that I say is gamma. So when we make choices and decisions, it's those results. It's our gamma. It's our choices that kind of put gamma into action. And when the Buddha is talking about body, speech, and mind here, you can think of body as being right action. You can think of speech as being right communication or right speech. You can think of the mind as being right intention or our thoughts. Right? This is how we will a decision into being. We make a certain decision in our mind and we either just sit there and ruminate over it and that produces a certain amount of gamma. We say something through speech or our communication and that creates gamma or we do some bodily action and that creates gamma. And then it says, what is the source of an origin of gamma? This is contact, having actual contact with another person, for example, or contact with some object, contact through the six sense spaces. This part of the book, there's going to be some detail on dependent origination that we're going to be looking at. And you'll see there where he, he talks about the six sense bases and contact and how through contact, what he's saying here is we create gamma. So if we see a certain form that's agreeable or disagreeable, then that's the contact. There's the eye, which is the internal sense base. There's the external sense base of the form, but then there's the contact between the internal sense base and the external sense base. That's the contact. And then what arises in the mind is consciousness or I consciousness in this example. So anytime there's contact, there's going to be gamma. Then gamma is experienced in all five realms. Right now we're in the human realm, so we're experiencing the gamma of our human rebirth. But gamma can also be experienced in all these different realms. So any gamma that we produced in any of the various realms, we're going to experience that gamma. We can't attain enlightenment and escape the cycle of rebirth until we've experienced all of our gamma. And now the fourth one, the Buddha talks about the results of gamma. So the result of gamma is to be experienced in this life, in our next rebirth, or some subsequent occasion, which is essentially saying, at any other future rebirth that we may experience. Or even if we attain enlightenment, there's still wholesome gamma that we're experiencing from that point forward. So if there's anything after enlightenment, then that could be also some subsequent occasion. But essentially what he's referring to is any potential future rebirth. Essentially what he's saying here is you can't run from your gamma. If you make an unwholesome decision, you can't run from that. It doesn't matter. Either it's going to be experienced in this life or some future life. It's not possible to run from it or escape from it. The fifth one here is, in what monks is the elimination of gamma? So since contact is the source and the origin of gamma, the elimination of gamma is contact. So this is can be thought of as, let's say you're in an argument with your spouse or you're in an argument with your children or your life partner or a coworker. 
while you're standing there having contact with your coworker or your life partner or your children, you guys are arguing, having contact, there's all kinds of unwholesome karma that's being produced in that argument. But to eliminate that in terms of no more further unwholesome karma being produced is if you realize your mind is agitated, you're argumentative, and you walk away from the situation and go be by yourself, then there's no unwholesome karma that you're creating there. Or another example, let's just say you wake up one morning and you feel pretty grumpy, you feel pretty irritable, and you know this because you've got mindfulness and you're aware that the mind is kind of irritable, frustrated, annoyed. Well, in that situation, you might choose to take an extra 30 minutes or an hour to be by yourself because you know if you go out, spend time with your life partner or your children or uh, neighbors or something like this, that it's not going to produce any good, wholesome results because your mind is already frustrated or agitated. And it wouldn't make sense for you to go have contact with people and just produce a whole bunch of unwholesome karma as a result of this discontentedness that is existing in the mind. So when you understand that contact is the source of karma, and then also by eliminating contact, you can eliminate any further production of karma, then you can use that to your advantage and choose to disengage from conversations or not even go out of your room maybe, maybe for 30 minutes or an hour, you just spend time gathering your mind, gathering your thoughts before you interact with somebody and start creating unwholesome gamma. Then the Buddha talks here in the sixth one about how the Eightfold Path is the elimination of unwholesome gamma because as you learn and you practice the Eightfold Path and you're practicing, it's going to eliminate all unwholesome gamma because you're producing only wholesome gamma. So when you practice right view through right concentration, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, all of these, then if you're practicing to perfection, you're not causing any harm to any beings. So therefore, you're practicing, for example, right speech to perfection. There's no harm that you're causing to anyone around you. So there's nothing harmful that's going to come back to you. But that takes time to build up to that point where you can practice right speech in every single relationship that you have. This is why some relationships that you have, you and that person probably have never had a harsh word between the two of you. Everything is completely wonderful in your relationship. Never had any problems whatsoever. But there might be other people in your life that you really struggle and there's arguments and it's hostile and it's very pressured. Most likely there's craving, desire, attachment in that relationship. And that's why you're experiencing the difficulties in practicing right speech there. But as you get rid of your craving, desire, attachment, you'll be more easily able to practice right speech in that situation. And you'll be able to gradually extinguish all the unwholesome decisions that you made in the past. Let me give you an example on this. Say that you have children that are 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 years old, 18 years old even. And you didn't know anything about these teachings and you were practicing whatever you were practicing all this time and maybe your children's mind has accumulated some ego or some negativity maybe they complain about things maybe they're disgruntled about certain things that go on in the household because they've kind of picked this up from you when you weren't practicing these teachings prior to practicing it 
Well, because you lack the wisdom of raising your children early in or in your life, now your children's mind has been conditioned to be a certain way. And now that you're starting to learn these teachings, you're cleaning up your mind. And you might be talking to other people in a very wholesome way, but your children are still having ego or they're still having unwholesome speech in certain situations because they just didn't learn the wisdom from you earlier in their life of how to practice these teachings. Well, now, if you're going to clean up your gamma, you would need to be practicing these teachings closer and closer and closer, providing that example for the people around you, like your life partner and your children. And then slowly, people will take note of that. Maybe they'll choose to start practicing that way. Maybe they'll actively learn from you. Maybe they'll read these books. Maybe they'll get involved in improving their practice. And then this will clean up the decisions that you lack the wisdom to make where you didn't teach them right speech from four years old or six years old or 10 or 12 years old. They're now maybe 18 or 20 and they're having challenges in life interacting with friends and classmates and people in their work environment because they lack that wisdom because you lack that wisdom. So now that you gain this wisdom, now if you are able to skillfully help your children, that would be a way for you to kind of clean up some of the past decisions. The Buddha says something here in this paragraph. When monks, a noble disciple thus understands gamma, the source of an origin of gamma, the diversity of gamma, the results of gamma, the elimination of gamma, and the way leading to the elimination of gamma. He understands this penetrative spiritual life to be the elimination of gamma. This is the whole goal of getting to enlightenment is the elimination of this unwholesome gamma. Because that's what the Eightfold Path is doing, is working towards the elimination of all these unwholesome decisions that we've made in our life and by making wiser and wiser decisions through this wisdom of these teachings then we can clean up and eliminate these unwholesome decisions that we've made in the past in terms of friends that we might have in terms of maybe jobs that we're holding that maybe certain co-workers that we're interacting with that we're harsh with or we've been aggressive with we need to clean all this up because like I've mentioned before, we were on this path, we were just kind of walking through the forest, knocking down trees and burning up the forest, where now we're kind of skillfully walking through this forest, being sure not to hurt any of the trees, being sure not to light any fires, that we're interested in practicing being peaceful and calm and serene and content with joy, living with all beings in a harmonious way. And once you have the wisdom, gradually building that up through this practice of the path to enlightenment, now you actually have the wisdom to be able to do that with your life partner, your children, your co-workers, your neighbors, your parents, siblings, all the people around you where before you might have gotten angry, you might have blamed it on them that they're causing you to be angry. We might have said hostile or aggressive things to people and that just put stress and strain on our relationships, where now once we start taking ownership over our emotions, realizing that we're causing those ourselves, and we're practicing in such a way that eliminates craving, anger, and ignorance, while we're practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, now we can start having more and more wholesome relationships with people. But those people's minds are conditioned 
that we have been hostile in the past and we have been aggressive in the past. So even though you might be cleaning up your practice for the last six months or a year or however long, those people are still going to talk to you in unwholesome ways because that's what they're used to. So you're going to have to make some decisions to practice in a better and better way, more and more wholesome, more and more wise decisions. And in some cases, like we were talking about previously, you might have to choose to move on from a relationship. That might be the way you clean up that gamma from your past decisions is you might have to choose to move on. And that's part of you moving into kind of a new life, so to speak. So that's what we all have to do in order to get to enlightenment is we need to eliminate this unwholesome gamma through making choices that are only going to produce wholesome gamma. And the Buddha is just saying here at the end that these are all things that essentially need to be understood. Questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher. Since that uh, Nick has a question, let's go to him. Hello, teacher. Um, the result of Dhamma is threefold. To be experienced in this life, the next rebirth, or some subsequent uh, occasion. So that's saying you can't run and hide from Kama. But is it, would it be correct to say you can't run and hide from Kama unless you eliminate it? You're not running and hiding from it. You're extinguishing it at that point. You're going to have to experience that Kama. But you then take active steps to eliminate it. Let me give you an example from my life. So earlier in my life, earlier in my relationship with my wife, I was pretty hostile. I was pretty aggressive. I was pretty nasty. And I did some really unwholesome things in our relationship. She got used to me doing those things. And then when I started practicing these teachings closely, she still had anger and she still had problems with the things that I've done in the past. So it took me a good three years to kind of work through that and kind of real intensely for a year and a half, two years, but then more completely about three years to kind of extinguish all that. There would be times where she would just get so frustrated with me and all that was really there was not anything I was doing in the present moment, but it was things that I had done in the past. She was still angry about it, holding on to that anger from the things that I had done in the past. And then that anger was coming back to me. Because when I was doing those things in the past, she wasn't saying anything to me. She was just quiet. She just kept it all in. She didn't say anything. I just did all my unwholesome stuff. And then there came a time, some subsequent occasion, which was essentially this life where now all this flood of anger and hostility came back to me. And I had to experience that. But now, because at that point I had discipline over the mind when she would be yelling at me or hostile with me i just remained completely calm where in the past if maybe she would have done that i would have been in there arguing and you know throwing the feces right back to her but because i understood these teachings better by that point then i was able to remain calm and composed and sometimes i just let her yell and yell and yell and then when she was done i just walked away and i had to do that many times other times when it was a little bit more civil, she might raise her voice or she might talk a little bit aggressive, but then I was able to skillfully share something with her to help her let it go. And I had to experience all that unwholesomeness in order to extinguish it. So you can't run and hide from it. You have to extinguish it. 
And in some cases, it might mean you just stand there and listen as someone's yelling and hollering at you. And in those situations where she was doing that, at that moment, I hadn't done anything at all. But it was from the past that the decisions that I'd made in the past were coming back to me. So you need to extinguish it. And part of extinguishing it is experiencing it. And then from that point, you got to extinguish it. And the way that I think about it is if you think about my wife yelling at me is picking up a, a rubber ball and throwing it. And it's got all this energy and it starts bouncing around in the room. Well, in the past, before I was practicing these teachings, when the ball would lose its energy, I would pick the ball back up and I would throw it around the room. And then it would lose its energy and she would pick it up and throw it around the room. And then I would pick it up and it just kept erupting. Well, when you understand what the Buddha is talking about, about contact is what's creating the gamma. Of course, it's our decisions. But when she would pick up the rubber ball and she would throw it around the room and it would lose its energy and it would roll into the corner of the room, I just looked at the ball and just walked away. And then that way, I wasn't picking the ball up and keeping the unwholesomeness continuing to bounce around in the room. And that's how this ball of unwholesome gamma lost its energy. And we extinguished these fires individually. We had to extinguish the fires. But as a household, we extinguished the fire so that now everything's cool. Everything's calm. Everything's serene. There's no arguments whatsoever. It's just everything's completely cool. But you have to experience that gamma in order to extinguish it. That makes sense, teacher. How would we experience one of, if, if one of these things fell under something that, that was supposed to be experienced under a next rebirth, but now you're following, now someone's following the teachings and um, they're working towards eliminating karma, doing the eightfold path. Yeah, so let me explain how this gamma from previous lives follows us because a lot of times people think it's like this dark cloud or this mystical, magical cloud that's somehow following us from life to life, but that's not actually how it works. Let's say in the past life I had a human birth and now this life I'm in a human birth. As I've explained to you before, it's craving that is the fuel that leads to the next rebirth. Whenever somebody dies, whenever any being dies, if there's still craving, desire, attachment in the mind, that mental longing with strong eagerness, if that exists, there's going to be rebirth in some realm. But in this example, we're saying that someone's being born from human to human, okay? And let's just say in the previous birth before this, let's say... I was a monk, and during that time when I was a monk, I didn't really have much sex in my life, and therefore there was this enormous amount of craving to have sex in that previous life, but it never got fulfilled. I never had an opportunity to do that. So therefore, when I died and was reborn into this life, maybe I have a lot of craving for sexual contact. And what moves from one birth to the next isn't the gamma it's actually the craving that gets moved from one life to the next so the mind in the previous life to this there was craving for sexual contact now that gets moved into this life and now in this life this being has craving in the mind for sexual contact and now maybe they go out and have 
sexual misconduct with a lot of different people. And they're producing gamma in this life based on craving that they didn't extinguish in a previous life. Another example is say in a previous life, in that life as a spiritual leader, I had a real craving to be at a temple and I just wanted to be in a temple and I wanted the temples to to run in a certain way. And then I never extinguished that. And then I died in that life and now I'm reborn in this life. And now with that craving in this life, maybe I go around to different temples and I start trying to order them and convince them to do things my way. And now I'm producing unwholesome results because maybe I'm not speaking in the best way. Maybe my actions are not the best. So it's not this black cloud that's following us. It's actually the craving, desire, attachment that's moving from one consciousness of one life to the next life. And now with this craving in this new life, it's producing gamma based on old cravings. That makes sense, teacher. It's the craving that's carried over. It's the craving, right? Because each life, it's a brand new life. It's a brand new body. It's a brand new mind. But the craving and residual memories from our previous lives transfer into the new consciousness. So if you think about the first existence as being a cardboard box A, and now this existence as David, cardboard box B, they're two completely different cardboard boxes. But at the end of that first life, craving and residual memories that are left over in cardboard box A, that mind gets moved into cardboard box B, this new mind of David. And now you start making decisions through that craving that existed in previous lives. So it's not that I killed someone in a last life. So therefore in this life, I'm going to have to pay the results of that, or I'm going to experience the results of that. It's that in that last life, I murdered somebody. I still have craving to murder human beings. So now in this new life, there's this craving to be aggressive and hostile and fighting and maybe murdering in this life too. So it's the actions that are being done that through the body, the speech and the mind that are being done in this life that is producing gamma. But it's because I never made the decisions in a previous life to extinguish that craving. For example. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. Well, Holly has a question. Let's see what here. Okay. My question is along this same number four. Okay. The result of comment about past life, rebirth. If this teaching seems to rely on knowing that rebirth is real. How can someone that know that this teaching is truth if they have no personal evidence that rebirth is real? The only way to know this is true is if you observe your past lives. And as the mind becomes more and more awake, there's some people that experience observation of past lives and some people that don't. What I would take away from this if I was somebody who didn't have recollection of past lives is understand what the Buddha is saying is, is true, but even though you don't believe it, even though you don't have the evidence of it, just let's take him on his word for now. And then know that you can't run from your karma. Any wholesome decisions, any unwholesome decisions that you make are going to produce some result. So therefore, look at making only wholesome decisions in your life. 
and extinguish any unwholesomeness that you've made. So you could use this as motivation to know, let me work on this mind and producing only wholesome decisions. But if you ever observe past lives and you observe details of those past lives and you know the cravings, desires, attachments you've had in those past lives, and then you see that you also have those same craving, desire, attachments in this life that have produced unwholesome results for you or wholesome results for you, then you can have the evidence for yourself that, aha, I see those last couple of lives I had. I see the craving, desire, attachments in those lives and I see what it produced in this life. So you'll have the proof positive evidence that this is true. But unless you see your past lives, you wouldn't necessarily know that. Well, let's turn it to Manan for Facebook questions. Thanks, Basan. Uh, we have a question on Facebook from Amina. The question is, what if having contact is unavoidable in a certain moment? Is it best to remain silent and take deep breaths until it is possible to disengage? Yeah, that's always an option. Guarding the, the sense bases, moving away mentally, you can move away. So that, that can be an option for you, sure. Because as soon as we open our mouth, as soon as we make an action with our body, as soon as we allow the thoughts to ruminate, that's what the Buddha is saying. Okay, that's producing karma. So you've got to calm the mind. You've got to quiet the voice and not produce any bodily actions. And that's going to disengage from any kind of contact through the mind, the speech, or the bodily actions. And thus, no unwholesome karma will be produced. No karma at all, essentially. Not just unwholesome, but even wholesome karma necessarily. Okay. Um, I thought that you're um, describing the rubber ball, uh, which you, um, in answering Nick's question, uh, is very interesting and um, it was a great sort of symbolism for um, ball of fire and just fuel for contact. My question is on contact though. Um, so would part of the reason why it is uh, challenging to eliminate contact the source um, be because there is a sort of biological component for survival in human beings in the human state yeah when there's craving there in the mind that's going to create the motivation for the mind to want to argue back for example like if somebody's yelling at you or disparaging you if there's that personal existence view there if there's this ego, this conceit of I want to be right, if there's this ill will, these other, you know, all these fetters that we talk about as part of getting to enlightenment, if there's these fetters in the mind, somebody else speaking something can trigger the mind to now speak in harsh and aggressive and argumentative ways, where if you eliminate all those fetters, the mind's just utterly peaceful. Somebody can sit there and yell and holler at you all day long and you're just like, okay, well, they're just making themselves upset. I'm not gonna allow my mind to get upset just because they're upset. So you can you know, train the mind to have the discipline that if you eliminate that craving of wanting to be right or protecting the self or projecting arrogance and all these other things, 
then the mind won't have any desire to argue because it has enough wisdom to realize that there's just no benefit in it whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So there's nothing about this fight or flight thing, you know, Manal, this this protection of the self. All of that stuff is essentially what the fight or flight is, is the protection of the self. And when you get rid of that self, then there's just no interest to, to argue. There's just no reason for it. Adding fuel to the fire, so to speak. You learn over time that it's just not worth it. Yes, I see, I see the point that you're trying to make. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a matter of gaining the mental discipline to practice in that way. Well, a no more question for this one teacher. Okay. The next volunteer is there, Nick. This body is old comma. Monks, this body is not yours, nor does it belong to others. It is old comma. To be seen as generated and created by volition, choices, decisions, as something to be felt. Therein, monks, the instructed noble disciple attends carefully and closely to dependent origination itself thus. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the elimination of this, that is eliminated. That is, with ignorance as condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness. With consciousness as condition, name and form. With name and form as condition, the sixth sense basis. With the sixth sense basis as condition, contact. With contact as condition, feeling. With feeling as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging. With clinging as condition, existence. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of discontentedness. But with the remainderless fading away and the elimination of ignorance comes elimination of volitional formations, the choices, decisions. With the elimination of volitional formations, elimination of consciousness, all aspects of dependent origination, with the elimination of birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair is eliminated. Such is the elimination of this whole mass of discontentedness. Okay, thanks, Nick. So here, the Buddha is talking specifically about the physical body as being old gamma. So when the egg, the sperm, and the consciousness comes together, to form a new being, the condition of that new being upon conception, which is essentially 
born into the world in a certain physical body, the Buddha is saying that is old gamma. Those are from decisions from the previous life. Because at that point, when there's an egg and a sperm and the consciousness that comes together, there hasn't been any decisions yet by that new consciousness in order to create this physical form. So any birth defects, for example, at birth, these are all attributed to decisions from past lives. And the Buddha's also saying a little bit about non-self here, saying, you know, this body is not yours. It doesn't belong to others. It's just old gamma. It's from decisions from the past, essentially, that has to be experienced. Then he goes into talking about dependent origination and explaining how birth actually comes to be and how we actually continue in this whole cycle of rebirth, including how we experience discontentedness. In the Four Noble Truths, he explains in four simple sentences, you know, what is discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination, and the complete elimination. But it's actually dependent origination that gives a accounting step by step by step of exactly how discontentedness comes to be. In the Four Noble Truths, we talk about discontentedness arising from craving because that's the truth. It does arise from craving. When there's this mental longing, strong eagerness, then there's going to be discontentedness. But in reality, the real problem that all beings are experiencing is not just that the mind is discontent, but the real problem is this whole cycle of rebirth that we keep being reborn over and over, continuing to experience aging, sickness, and death, along with this sorrow, grief, pain, and displeasure. It all comes to be. And the Buddha explains here at the beginning of dependent origination that the one condition that's essentially leading to everything, all the problems that are being encountered in life is this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. Because of this unknowing of true reality, beings continue to crave, they continue to be reborn, they continue to experience discontentedness in this life, and it just keeps continuing on and on. But this is a detailed list through dependent origination, which I explain in detail in volume five. But we can talk about it here if you guys liked. Essentially, this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. What is the unenlightened mind ignorant about? Well, it doesn't even realize that craving is causing discontentedness. It doesn't understand the five precepts, for example. And a mind or a being continues to kill, steal, have sexual misconduct lie and take substances that cause heedlessness that lead to harmful results the mind is ignorant of things like right intention and right speech we continue to speak in ways that are unwise because we don't have the understanding of true reality of what is it that would truly be right speech for example so because of that ignorance or lack of wisdom we continue to make decisions that's what volitional formations are we continue to make choices and decisions through that ignorance, through that unknowing of true reality, through that lack of wisdom. We continue to make unwholesome decisions, which leads to a polluted consciousness, a polluted mind. And then with that mind, then when we talk about name and form, essentially what he's talking about is the physical body. He goes into a lot more detail that you'll see in volume five of what name and form is, but this is essentially the physical body. With that mind in this physical body, 
Then the six senses come to be, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the physical body, and the mind. We start maturing these six sense bases in the womb, and then when we come out of the womb, the six sense bases continue to grow. Then we end up having contact with certain forms, certain sounds, certain odors, certain flavors, certain physical objects touch the body, certain mental objects in the mind. And because of that contact, there are certain feelings that get produced in the mind. Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And when we experience those pleasant feelings, then we develop craving, wanting those pleasant feelings to be permanent. We crave those pleasant feelings. And if we get the objects of our affection, then we experience these pleasant feelings. But if we don't, then we experience these painful feelings. And then we sometimes experience these neither painful nor pleasant feelings. And we want to cling. We want to hold on to these pleasant feelings, wanting them to be permanent. And because of this, then there's existence. We continue to exist over and over and over again. We're reborn. We're continually born. And because we're born, then we experience aging and death. And once we're born, we're also experiencing sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair, essentially discontentedness. And that is what produces the whole mass of discontentedness. So he's tracing it step by step, showing how ignorance is the thing that's keeping the unenlightened mind trapped in the cycle of rebirth. And through eradicating ignorance, that's what this part down here is, where he talks about the elimination of ignorance, then we eliminate the unwise decisions that we're making. We start making wholesome decisions. And then with those wholesome decisions, we clean up and purify our consciousness. And then by purifying our consciousness, it goes through all the other stages of dependent origination. We essentially ultimately stop craving and clinging to pleasant feelings. And we can reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because we've eradicated this whole mass of discontentedness, this whole dependent origination, and then we no longer are reborn. That's what this last paragraph is saying, is essentially by unraveling all of this stuff, if there is no ignorance, if we replace ignorance with wisdom, then because the condition of ignorance does not exist, then unwise volitional formations do not come to be. And when we unwise volitional formations do not come to be, then our consciousness is purified. And then our physical body, name and form, is light. It's at ease. Then we're not craving through these six sense bases. We're not looking for contact through the six sense bases. We're not chasing after these pleasant feelings, experiencing painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. We've eradicated craving and clinging. So therefore, existence and rebirth doesn't come to be. So therefore, we no longer experience aging and death or sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure. This is why the Buddha calls enlightenment the deathless. Because once your mind is enlightened, there's no more death. Because there's no more birth, there's no more death. Okay? So that kind of helps you guys understand a bit about dependent origination. I explain it in my own words in Volume 5, Chapter 14. Questions on 
this chapter? No question, the stand teacher. Oh, I think that the whole other question. Okay. I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask this question, and I feel like it might be kind of all over the place. It's my question is coming up from a personal situation. So it's more related to something that you said in the in your comments on this chapter about I don't know exactly where it is, but it was about how when a being is <clears throat> born and their body is unhealthy and unable to sustain life. So I'm thinking of a human infant who has something wrong with it that it can't live and it ends up dying. So I have a lot of questions about that specific situation. Um, one is that I'm, I'm assuming because an infant doesn't have the ability to understand the teachings, so they won't be able to attain enlightenment at the end of their life, even if they give up their craving for whatever it is they're needing at the time, food or warmth from their parents or whatever. Is that something that is possible or they would have to be reborn in order to learn the teachings in order to attain enlightenment? They can still potentially attain enlightenment at death. You don't actually have to learn the teachings in order to attain enlightenment at death. If you're going to attain enlightenment during this life and then experience the benefits of that for the rest of your life, you would need to learn and practice the teachings to train the mind and improve the condition of the mind. But there are beings that attain enlightenment at death without having ever learned these teachings ever. So a infant that is born and actually dies early in life, they could potentially attain enlightenment at death and escape the whole cycle of rebirth. Okay, my next question on that same topic is, do you feel or do you know that if um, this situation happened, does the death of that infant have anything in relation to the gamma of the parents when they suffer the grief associated with the death of their child? Or is that there's just their discontentedness at that loss? And, and in other words, do unhealthy beings get sent to parents for a reason for, for them to experience their own gamma? There isn't any being or any entity that's sending a unhealthy infant to certain parents in order to punish them or have them experience something unwholesome because of things that they've done. You just think of this natural cycle, right? The cycle of rebirth is just happening on its own, unimpeded, without anybody having their finger on the button to make things happen at any given time. But if a parent, a husband and wife, experience a birth and their child dies, it's not that they're being punished. It's just a, the way things happened. It's a cause and effect, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're being punished because there's no one to punish them. There's not anyone punishing them or doing this on purpose. It could be, let's just say somebody was 40, 45, late in their years, but they just had a craving to have children, but the parents' bodies just weren't healthy enough to sustain the life of the baby. And when the baby was born, it died early in life. And this wasn't as a punishment. It was just because 
their body was old. They were older. They didn't make the decision to have children until they were older, but yet they had a craving to have a child. So they attempted to do that, but yet their egg and the sperm just wasn't viable and it didn't produce a offspring that would be able to sustain its life. So it's not anyone being punished. It's just the results of the decisions that were made. So a parent in that situation, could it could possibly be results of past decisions in this life or previous life that that happens to them. So remember that what's moving from one life to the next is the craving and residual memories. So let's just say in their previous life, they didn't have any kids at all. And they really craved to have kids. And that was one of the cravings they had in their previous life. And when they died, it created rebirth. So now they're in this new life. They still have this massive craving to have children. Uh, and they, they're 40 years old, 45 years old. They haven't had children yet, but there's still this craving to have children. So they're actually making the decisions now that's affecting them now. But it's because of the craving now that never got extinguished in a previous life. So it's not like they hit their children in a past life and now they're being punished in this life by having their child die. It's not the way it happens. There's nothing like that that's carrying from one life to the next. And there's no entity that's causing someone to suffer and punish them because of things that they've done in the past. It's our own decisions that are leading cause and effect, cause and effect, like dominoes, one hitting into the next, to the next, to the next, that are causing the string of events to occur. We're causing all the wholesome results and all the unwholesome results that happen in our life. The mind, and I know your background, Holly, growing up with like some people fear God and they think that God is punishing people And oftentimes when they look at gamma, they think it's the same thing, that somehow someone's being punished for something that they've done, but nobody's being punished by anybody for anything. It's our own decisions that are leading to some certain result or consequence. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, Marlon has a question. Let's do it there. Thanks, Basil. I take you, David. Um, Just a curious curiosity question I have. what do you feel or what do you think would have been um, the timeline for when Gautama Buddha actually taught dependent origination for his um, most trusted um, disciples? And maybe the reason why I'm asking that is because the mind is trying to understand the chronology of um, the teaching and the importance of absorbing the teaching in um, the appropriate um, chronology. I suspect that dependent origination was taught once people start getting into the jhanas because then they've seen enough evidence and they've practiced enough that they can look at something like this and they can walk through their own experiences of what they experienced and they can know something like dependent origination is true. This isn't something that is taught early because this is the ultimate teaching of the Buddha. Dependent origination is the most technical, the most challenging, oftentimes the most difficult for people to understand this and the universal truth of non-self and 
eradication of personal existence view. Those are the three things that are the most challenging for people. So I suspect dependent origination was kind of reserved for later because in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, somebody would need to know dependent origination and be able to explain it and understand it just to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment. So I suspect that because it's such a challenging teaching, it's the ultimate truth, it's the most complicated that it gets in terms of the Buddhist teachings, that he probably shared it once people got into the jhanas, I suspect. But I don't know because there's never a time where he explains at what point does he teach this. But I suspect, based on the things that I have seen, in terms of how he explains how he lays out his teachings and what he teaches first, what he teaches second, what he teaches third, dependent origination doesn't really show up there. It's very much towards the the end of the life cycle of a student getting into the jhanas and before the first stage of enlightenment is what I suspect. Yes. All right, that's, um, that's interesting to know. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if this was the first time you kind of heard me talk to this level of detail of dependent origination and it's just not really clicking with you, that's completely normal. It takes multiple times to learn and understand and then you have to reflect on it. You have to look in the world and kind of see it for yourself and see the truth in it. And it takes quite a while to wrap your mind around dependent origination. So just like non-self and just like personal existence view, that's something that you usually need to visit multiple times before it starts to really click and make sense. Would you have eradicated non-self before you um, knew dependent origination up and down as you describe it? Potentially, potentially not. But in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, you would need to eradicate the personal existence view. And you would need to also know the dependent origination as well. So whether you eradicate personal existence view and then you understand dependent origination or you understand dependent origination and then you eradicate personal existence view, I don't know that that really matters. But all of that has to happen along with some other things just to get to the first stage of enlightenment. Okay. Well, no more questions for this chapter. Okay. All right, now we got an easy one. <laughs> After all that dependent origination and talk about gamma and moving gamma from one life to the next. All right. Everyone gets to breathe. Five precepts. All right. <laughs> Who's reading this one? It's me. Okay. The five precepts. One, abandoning the taking of life, refraining from taking life, without state or sword, diligent, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Two, abandoning the taking of what is not given, living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given, without stealing. Three, abandoning unchastity, Abandoning sexual relations with women, men who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister, or relatives, who are protected by their teachings, who have a husband, wife, or partner, whose relation entails a penalty, or even with one who has been girlanded by a man, woman, as a sign of engagement, 
for abandoning false speech, refraining from false speech, a trust speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Five, refraining from strong drink and sloth, producing drugs, substances that cause hideousness, the basis for hideousness. Okay, thanks, Bossum. We cover the five precepts very detailed in the group learning program. And I use this same exact language in volume one as I teach five precepts and I go through piece by piece. So I will just turn things over to you guys and see what questions you guys have. One thing I will say, though, is just always keep in mind that the precepts are training guidance. They're not commandments. They're not rules. They're not sins that you've broken if you don't practice these. Essentially, what the five precepts are is they're training guidance that when you practice these to perfection, you're going to significantly eliminate unwholesome karma production. Because if you're not killing living beings, then you're eradicating hatred and anger from the mind. You're not going to cause harm to other beings. So therefore, you're not going to experience harm like going to jail or people thinking uh, negatively of you in terms of you were like killing dogs and cats and things like this. You know, I was watching something on YouTube just yesterday, this joke where this guy was pretending to kill pigeons and eat pigeons and people in the park were just looking at him like so weird and so strange. They were afraid to be around him. Those are the kind of things that we encounter when we kill. And there has to be a certain amount of hatred and anger in order for that to happen. In each one of these, if we were to do any of these, it's going to produce harm in the world. So therefore, harm is going to come to us. So you should think of it as training guidance. There's no one that's going to punish you for doing these things. It's actually we punish ourselves because if we steal or we have sexual misconduct or we lie or we take substances that cause heedlessness, this is our decisions that we're making to do these things. And because we're putting this harm into the world, harm is going to come back to us. So by practicing these to perfection, we significantly reduce unwholesome karma. But the five precepts don't extinguish it. It's the eightfold path that completely extinguishes unwholesome karma. This is just going to significantly knock it down. And this is oftentimes where the Buddha would start people out in practicing is through improving their conduct, improving their moral conduct is if you can start with this or if you have children and you can start with this or if you have a life partner who's just looking for something simple to start with, this would be a good way to just kind of start with practicing something along with right view in meditation is being sure that someone ramps up their practice of the five precepts that will significantly reduce their unwholesome decision making and improve the results that they're experiencing in life. Holly has a question. Hi, this just popped up in my mind and I was just curious and thought I would ask it. I think it'll be a short answer, simple question. Um, you, you talk about in the group learning program about how um, consequences or dhamma from decisions is never one for one. It's not that you do this bad thing and then one bad thing happens to you or you do this good thing and one good thing happens. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is a, um, a level of maybe like extremism as a, like a killing an ant as opposed to killing a human with the consequences and the results of 
the cause and effect of that be the same like killing an ant seems very insignificant because it's a very small insignificant creature as opposed to killing a human which has a consciousness and is a living a, a person that you know a human is there is there a difference in the results or in the the cause and effect between those two things or as opposed to like um you know drinking coffee as opposed to doing drugs mm -hmm. is that a, is there a level of things for that Yes, there absolutely is, because in those situations, there's more craving. Because all unwholesome gamma is produced through craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality. The more craving, the more unwholesome. The more anger, the more unwholesome. The more ignorance, the more unwholesome. So in order to kill an ant, there's still a certain amount of hatred and anger. There's a certain amount of craving there that exists. And it's still going to produce difficulties in our life, but not the same as if we kill a human. So in order to kill a human, there has to be a significant more amount of craving. And there has to be a significant amount more of anger and hatred and ill will. And there has to be a significant amount more of ignorance or unknowing a true reality. And that's why the ramifications of that are more significant because of craving, anger and ignorance is a lot higher it's more involved it's more extensive so that's why the ramifications are higher same thing for caffeine versus methamphetamine for example the craving the ignorance is a lot higher with something like a methamphetamine or cocaine versus something like a caffeine but still that caffeine still going to give you headaches it's still going to stimulate your mind and have you overthinking, getting too excited, maybe saying things unwholesome to people if your mind's running too fast, but not the same as something like a methamphetamine where you can end up completely addicted, sores in your skin, you know, losing your teeth, going to jail, losing your job, losing your children, you know, because that craving and ignorance is a lot higher to go into something like that but they're still affecting the individual. They're just at different degrees. Well, no more questions for now, teacher. Okay. I had a feeling you guys wouldn't have too many on that one. You guys can read the things that I wrote here to kind of expand upon what you already know about that. All right, chapter 45. Yes, uh, the next frontier is uh, Holly. A great gift. Monks, here a noble disciple, having abandoned the destruction of life, abstains from the destruction of life. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to an immeasurable number of beings freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. He himself, in turn, enjoys immeasurable fear, freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. This is the first gift, a great gift, highest of long-standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which is not being tainted and will not be tainted, not refused by wise aesthetics and Brahmins. This is the stream of merit, stream of the wholesome, nutriment of peacefulness, heavenly ripening peacefulness, conducive to heaven, that leads to what is aspired for, needed and agreeable to one's welfare and peacefulness. The other four precepts, which are abstaining from taking of what is not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from lying, and abstaining from consuming substances that cause heedlessness are repeated with the Buddhist guidance. 
There are amongst these five gifts, great gifts, highest of long standing, traditional, ancient, untainted, and never before tainted, which are not being tainted and will not be tainted, not refused by wise ascetics and Brahmins. All right, thank you. So here, this the Buddha is talking about essentially some of the benefits of practicing the five precepts that we give to others this freedom, this freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. And because that's what we're doing, that people don't have to fear us killing them, other beings, animals, and humans. They don't have to fear us stealing. They don't have to fear us having sexual misconduct. They don't have to fear us lying. They don't have to fear us taking substances that cause heedlessness. They themselves don't have this fear, hostility, and harm. And the Buddha talks it as being immeasurable. There's this enormous amount of immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and harm. Therefore, we also enjoy this immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and harm that we don't have to worry if someone's going to come and kill us or if we're going to go to jail or something like this or practicing the third precept about sexual misconduct. If you're practicing abandoning of sexual misconduct and you're in a loyal, committed relationship and your partner is also practicing that way, both of you guys have this immeasurable amount of freedom of any kind of fear, hostility, or harm because both of you are practicing in a very wholesome way. So the Buddha talked about all five of the precepts this way, that because of our decision to practice the five precepts, we're not putting out harm. We're giving this freedom of fear, hostility, and harm. So therefore, that's what we experience as well, that we won't experience fear, hostility, or any harm coming to us based on these five precepts and practicing them very closely. Any questions on this one? Not seeing any questions for this one, Richard. All right. Chapter number 46, the eight precepts. Yes. The next one, curious, Marcia. The eight precepts. The Abhusasata precepts. One, I too shall abandon and abstain from the destruction of life. With the rod and weapon laid aside, consciousness and kindly, I too shall reside compassionate towards all living beings. Two, I shall abandon and abstain from taking what is not given. I shall accept only what is given, awaiting what is given, and be honest in mind, free of theft. Three, I too shall abandon sexual activity and observe celibacy, living apart, abstaining from sexual intercourse, the common person's practice. Four, I too shall abandon and abstain from false speech. I shall be a speaker of truth, an adherent of truth, trustworthy and reliable, not a deceiver of the world. Five, I too shall abandon and abstain from liquor, wine and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. Six, I too shall eat once a day, abstaining from eating at night and from food outside the proper time. Seven, I too shall abstain from dancing, singing, instrumental music and unsuitable shows and from adorning and beautifying myself by wearing garlands and applying scents and fragrance. Eight, I too shall abandon and abstain from use of high and luxurious beds. I shall lie down on a low resting place 
either a small bed or a straw mat. Thank you, Marcia. This eight precepts are an expansion beyond the five precepts. And normally what somebody will do is they will start with the five precepts, bring their practice up to practicing those with perfection. And then if they choose when or if they would like to choose, they can move to the eight precepts if they like. And each one of these precepts, remember they're training guidelines. They're helping to train the mind and purify the mind from certain aspects of this unenlightened mind that is conditioned in a certain way, these are moving you closer to eliminating certain fetters in the mind. And in this chapter in the explanation, I went through a very exhaustive and detailed description of each individual precept and what they're actually eliminating from the mind. Because as you see here, things that are different from the five precepts is instead of just not committing sexual misconduct, Number three, this person would be not having sex at all. And that's a decision that someone makes as they decide they would like to move into the third or fourth stage of enlightenment. And then number six is added, right? So number three is modified, but then six, seven, and eight are added to the five precepts. And I discuss in the explanation of exactly why each one of these are added and how you can integrate them into your practice if you choose to do that and why you might choose to do that. So rather than go through all of those details since they're already in the explanation, I'll just see what questions you guys have about what you read and if you're curious about how to implement these or what they're used for, anything like that. We have a question from Nick. Teacher David, I was wondering if if we could check uh, understanding on this. Um, the five precepts, from my understanding, um, and based on the last chapter, it's conducive to heaven. Like if someone's just practicing those, they're pretty much getting into heaven if they're following it to the T. But uh, if they're following um, you know, all of the Buddhist teachings, um, the goal is to get into enlightenment. But with the five precepts, the first and second stage, because of um, the third precept there, they would have to they would have to um, adopt the third precept here from the eighth just in the in the five and they can do enlightenment based on the five with the third change to this one the uh Upasatha precepts um that that's one part of the question uh the other part of the question is these eight precepts um it's just training guidelines or guidance rather, um, to help someone easily or more, more easily or more, more, more readily attain enlightenment. It's just, it's just like extra help. Um, it, it, so I was wondering, that's, that's my question there on that. Um, and, uh, are these like the, the first eight precepts out of the, out of the monks, like 200 and some odd or 300 if it's a female? I think we should take one or two at a time, Nick. You're giving me a whole bunch of questions. Okay. All right. All right. That all right. Sounds good. Well, you would like to confirm your understanding. So what you're saying is all true. I agree with what you're saying. So, for example, for someone to attain enlightenment, it doesn't mean that everyone has to eat once a day. That's not what this is about. What these are about is the Buddhist guiding people to eliminate those 10 fetters and one of those fetters number four is about central desire 
And in order to train the mind to eliminate sensual desire, there's six senses that you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment through those six senses. One of them is the tongue. And by eating once a day, you're able to look at food and eat in moderation rather than eat in order to please the tongue, thus please the mind. So this is one way to train to eliminate sensual desire. But someone could still eat two or three times a day and still attain enlightenment. But they're going to need to eliminate sensual desire. But not everybody who attains enlightenment is going to eat once a day, for example. That's where your question's going, right, Nick? That's one of them. Um, the way I understand, like, the, the, the idea behind the Yuposatha precepts is it's just to, it's a better assistance to more readily attain enlightenment. So if that's something someone needed to work on, but uh, if we're using number six as an example, the, the, um, the eating, like, it wouldn't be advisable for someone like an athlete to to cut down to once a day like like they should they should be focusing on other things they can still attain enlightenment and and plus this was written 2500 years ago you know maybe the new buddha could could like update it because the um you know if he so chooses you know um because nutrition has declined o- over over time because of the soil the condition of the soil things like that um, we're using like GMO crops. You know, it's not as nutritious, I would say. Right. We know things today that have changed. And the Buddha knew that impermanence was going to affect his teachings. The thing that stays is that the 10 fetters have to be eliminated from the mind. For sure, for sure, for sure. To get to enlightenment. But something like eating once a day, that is kind of like a ratcheting up of moving the mind to eliminate central desire but it's not that everybody has to eat once a day to attain enlightenment that's not what this is about these are additional guidelines that will move the mind closer to enlightenment in a more expeditious way something like number three eliminating sexual activity anybody who's going to attain enlightenment will ultimately need to do that but when or if they're ready to do that is their personal choice so that's why someone might kind of practice the five precepts for a year two years five years ten years 20 years 30 years before they ever get to perhaps eliminating sexual activity out of their their life and then that might be something that they start to practice as part of that practice of moving away from sexual contact but this is not a cookie cutter one size fits all Everybody has to do this to attain enlightenment. That's not what this is is teaching. The five, of course, those have to be practiced because of the the natural law of gamma and the way that it, it functions. But these other modifications, the one to three, and then the addition of six, seven, and eight, these are to eliminate the fetters. Whereas if you slept on a high bed or you slept on a low bed, you're not causing harm to anyone else. This is all based on your own own mind. If you listen to music and dancing and entertainment, this isn't causing harm to anyone else. This is only potentially going to make it more challenging for you to eliminate sensual desire. If you eat more than once a day, you can still eliminate sensual desire. It's not going to cause any harm to others. If you choose to eat once a day, twice a day, three times a day, four times a day, it's not going to cause any harm. But the five precepts, 
that we talked about in the previous chapter, if you don't practice those, those are going to cause harm for sure. So therefore, harm is going to come to you. So this is kind of a ratcheting up of the training discipline to make enlightenment more possible and more readily achievable. All right, sir. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that all makes sense to me. Um, first five greatly reduces um, the harm we're causing in the world. It significantly reduces unwholesome comma. Um, number three would have to be changed to this to actually get to the third and fourth stage of enlightenment. But six, seven, and eight are just um, guidance and assistance to help eliminate the fetters. Since uh, number six, um, you're saying it, it, someone doesn't necessarily have to do that just because of impermanence. Um, but uh, would, would, would this be wise um, to say, since the intention of number six is to help eliminate the sensual desire for this example is food, um, but so, say if someone's still eating twice a day, um, do you think like fasting um, would would help assist in that um, reduce reducing like craving if they can control their appetite? That would help to I would imagine that would help to eliminate like the sensual desire for food. So something like fasting, like um, intermittent fasting that that would be daily or even just fasting for an entire day, like things like to become unattached from food. Yeah, those things can help. But again, not everybody has to fast in order to get to enlightenment. What the Buddha really teaches around food is he teaches moderation and eating, that we should eat in moderation. We should engorge and make our stomachs real huge and give the body all this work to do to process our food. And we also shouldn't eat in a starving way, in a way that's going to starve the body. So everything the Buddha taught is about the middle. So eating in moderation is what's important. And then observing if there's any craving, desire, attachments related to food. That's what we've got to eliminate here. And someone could actually eat once a day and still have craving, desire, attachment to certain foods. So there's no magic behind eating once a day. That is one way to help the mind, but you could actually still have craving, desire, attachment to food, even though you're eating once a day. So what's important and what I did in the description of this chapter is I went through and explained one by one of what these training precepts are getting at and what's being improved in the mind. And then as you're discussing, there's multiple ways to get to that which number six is all about eliminating sensual desire through the tongue. Once a day eating is one approach. Fasting is another approach, but there's also other ways too. And this is where mindfulness has to come in for a practitioner. You have to be very mindful. Awareness, there has to be awareness as you're going towards food. Is your mind pulling in the direction of any particular foods? Do you feel this great pleasure when you ingest certain foods? Do you feel painful feelings when you can't get certain foods? And if you're observing that, then there's some craving, desire, attachments there to foods, and you have to observe that and then take action to eliminate it. And that's on a one-by-one -one basis in each situation. So you can't just fast for a week and then that means that central desire is all gone so there has to be this 
understanding, this learning, this wisdom that comes in about how to really observe if the mind is craving desire attached to any particular foods. And the way that you know that is if there's pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant that arise based on food. And that's where the mindfulness has to be really well developed so you can see that for yourself. Even your teacher can't necessarily tell you unless they see you gorging or lurching after a piece of chocolate cake you have to be able to observe that yourself that's why it's an independent journey and then when you observe that then you have to take the action to separate yourself and distance yourself from those cravings okay sir thank you very much for the clarification um i understand that um the intention behind number six it's to make sure there's no, it's to help get rid of cravings that desire attachment to food. And this is just one approach. Exactly. The way it's written. All right, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. No more questions for now, Richard. Okay. So as you can see here, I did a very long explanation of this chapter. I have to scroll through, there we go. Chapter 47. Is this me, Basim? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so chapter 47, 10 courses of unwholesome gamma. Impurity by body, kunda, is threefold. Impurity by speech is fourfold. Impurity by mind is threefold. And how, kunda, is impurity by body threefold? Here, someone destroys life. He is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless, to living beings. Two, he takes what is not given. He steals the wealth and property of others in the village or forest. Three, he engages in sexual misconduct. He has sexual relations with women who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister, or relative, who are protected by their teachings, who have a husband whose violation entails a penalty or even with one already engaged. And it is in this way that impurity by body is threefold. So here, this is essentially the first three precepts where the Buddha is saying, if you do any of these with the physical body, there's going to be unwholesome gamma as a result. And how, Kunda, is impurity by speech fourfold? Here, someone speaks falsehood. If he is summoned to a council, to an assembly, to his relative's presence, to his club, or to the court, and questioned as a witness thus, so good man, tell what you know. Then, not knowing, he says, I know. Or knowing, he says, I do not know. Not seeing, he says, I see. Or seeing, he says, I do not see. Thus, he knowingly speaks falsehood for his own benefit, or for the other's benefit, or for some insignificant worldly benefit. Two, he speaks argumentatively. Having heard something here, he repeats it somewhere in order to divide those people from these. Or, having heard something elsewhere, he repeats it to these people in order to divide them from those. Thus, he is one who divides those who are united, a creator of divisions, one who enjoys separation, rejoices in separation, finds pleasure in separation, 
a speaker of words that create separation. Three, he speaks harshly. He speaks such words as are rough, hard, hurtful to others, offensive to others, bordering on anger, unconducive to concentration. Four, he indulges in idle chatter. He speaks at improper times, speaks falsely, speaks what is unbeneficial, speaks opposite to the teachings and the discipline. At an improper time, he speaks such words as are unwise, unreasonable, rambling, and unbeneficial. It is in this way that impurity by speech is fourfold. And how, Kunda, is impurity by mind threefold? Here, someone is full of longing or craving. He longs and craves for the wealth and property of others thus. Oh, may what belongs to another be mine. Two, he has a mind of ill will and intentions of hate. Thus, may these beings be slain, slaughtered, cut off, destroyed, or obliterated. He holds wrong view or ignorance, unknowing of true reality, and has an incorrect perspective thus. There is nothing given, nothing sacrificed, nothing offered. There is no fruit or result of wholesome and unwholesome actions. There is no this world, no other world. There is no mother, no father. There are no beings spontaneously reborn. There are in the world no aesthetics and Brahman of right conduct and right practice, who having realized this world in the other world for themselves by direct knowledge or experience, make them known to others. It is in this way that impurity by mind is threefold. These kunda are the ten courses of unwholesome gamma. It is because people engage in these ten courses of unwholesome gamma that hell, the animal realm, the realm of afflicted spirits, and other bad destinations are seen. So the Buddha is going through a very detailed list of things that are producing unwholesome gamma. And it essentially comes down to craving, anger, and ignorance, all of these things. And then, since I think Basam has me for this one too, chapter 48 is exactly the opposite, where the Buddha talks about how to purify the body, speech, and mind with producing only wholesome gamma, which are exactly the opposites of the ones that I just read, where they abandon taking life. They no longer steal. They no longer have sexual misconduct. They speak the truth. They no longer speak falsehoods. They no longer are argumentative. They no longer speak with harsh speech. They don't have idle chatter or frivolous speech. They speak at the proper time. They don't have craving. They don't have ill will. They don't have ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. They're practicing right view. And this is how one would produce wholesome gamma. So what questions you guys have, and we can take them either as unwholesome or wholesome between chapters 47 and 48. Not seeing any question for these two chapters. Okay, so let's go to chapter 49 then. Is that me too, Basam? Yes. Okay. The benefits from residing possessed of virtue. Remember, virtue is moral conduct or practicing good, wholesome moral conduct. The Buddha is going to talk about 
certain benefits of having good, wholesome moral conduct. Monks reside possessed of virtue, possessed of the training guidelines, restrained with the restraint of the training guidelines, perfect in conduct in course of action in a difficult situation, and seeing danger in the slightest faults, trained by undertaking the training precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I be dear and agreeable to my companions in the holy life, respected and admired by them. Let them fulfill the precepts, be devoted to internal serenity of mind, not neglect meditation, be possessed of wisdom, and reside in empty huts. If a monk should aspire, may I be one to obtain robes, alms food, resting places, and medical supplies. Let them fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may the services of those whose robes, alms food, resting place, and medicinal supplies I use bring them great fruit and benefit. Let them fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, when my kinsmen and relatives who have passed away and die remember me with confidence in their minds, may that bring them great fruit and benefit. Let them fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I become a conqueror of sadness and excitement, and may sadness and excitement not conquer me. May I reside transcending sadness and excitement whenever they arise. Let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I become a conqueror of fear and dread, and may fear and dread not conquer me. May I reside transcending fear and dread. Whenever they arise, let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I become one to obtain at will, without trouble or difficulty, the four jhanas that constitute the higher mind and provide a peaceful residing here and now. Let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I with the destruction of the three fetters become a stream enterer, no longer subject to hell, bound for liberation, headed for enlightenment. Let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I with the destruction of the three fetters and with the fading of craving anger and ignorance become a once returner, returning once to this world to make an end of discontentedness, let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I with the destruction of the five lower fetters become due to reappear spontaneously in the heavenly realm and there attain final nibbana, without ever returning from that world, let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I wield the various kinds of supernormal power, let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I with the divine ear element, which is purified and surpasses the human, let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, May I understand the minds of other beings, of other persons, having encompassed them with my own mind. Let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I recollect, recall, remember my countless past lives. Let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I with the divine eye, or this third eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, 
see beings passing away and reappearing, let him fulfill the precepts. If a monk should aspire, may I be realizing for myself with direct knowledge or experience, here and now, enter upon and reside in the liberation of mind, in liberation by wisdom, that are taintless with the destruction of the taints, let him fulfill the precepts, be devoted to internal serenity of mind, not neglect meditation, be possessed of wisdom, and reside in empty huts. So it was with reference to this that it was said, Monks, reside possessed of virtue, practicing moral conduct, possessed of the training guidelines, restrained by the restraint of the training guidelines, perfect in conduct and course of action in a difficult situation, and seeing danger in the slightest faults, trained by undertaking the training precepts. So here the Buddha is giving all these different reasons of why to practice the precepts and starting out with very basic things and leading up further and further to ultimately enlightenment that the precepts and practicing good moral conduct leads to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have here? No question this time, teacher. All right. So it looks like we just have this one last chapter, which actually connects with the future chapters we're going to read, chapters 51 through 60. This is about how to obtain a rebirth, a better destination than what you currently are experiencing. So who's reading this one, Basim? Nick, there's a next one here. Nick, do you mind if I read this one? No, sir. Go ahead. Okay, I'm just looking at the time, and I, I like to be sensitive to people's time, so I'm just going to read it a little bit more expeditiously. So this one is chapter 50. To obtain a straight destination and rebirth, monks, beings are the owners of their gamma, the heirs of their gamma. They have gamma as their origin, gamma as their relative, gamma as their resort. Whatever gamma they do, wholesome or unwholesome, they are its heirs. Here, Having abandoned the destruction of life, someone abstains from the destruction of life with the rod and weapon laid aside, dedicated and kindly. He resides compassionate toward all living beings. He is not secretive by body, speech, and mind. His bodily gamma is straight. His verbal gamma is straight. His mental gamma is straight. His destination is straight. His rebirth is straight. But... For one with a straight destination and rebirth, I say, there is one of two destinations, either the exclusively pleasant heavens or affluent families in the human realm, such as those affluent katiyas, affluent brahmins, or affluent householders, families that are rich with great wealth and property, abundant gold and silver, abundant treasures and belongings, abundant wealth and grain. Thus, a being is reborn from a being. One is reborn through one's deeds. When one has been reborn, contacts affect one. It is in this way, I say, that beings are the heirs of their gamma. So the Buddha spoke of abandoning, of taking what is not given, abandoning the sexual misconduct with discourses similar to the one here, abandoning 
taking of life. So here the Buddha starts off this one with essentially saying that you're producing all your own gamma. Other people cannot produce gamma for you. So if you're in a conversation and someone's aggressive, harsh, angry, and argumentative, and you're just quiet, or you just choose to talk politely, you're not creating any unwholesome gamma. They are because they're unwholesome. They're practicing harshness, aggressiveness. They're the ones that are producing that. So that's why you don't have to feel a need to argue back with somebody. Because as soon as you start being harsh and aggressive back, that's when you're producing unwholesome gamma for yourself. So any kind of wholesome gamma or unwholesome gamma, it all has to originate from you and you alone. And it's your actions, both bodily, verbal, and mental that are producing that. The Buddha is talking here about, you know, when we improve our practice, then we improve our life, of course. Our life becomes more straight, is what he describes it as. Or he also sometimes says, we're walking the upright way, right? The straight way, the upright way. And because of that, practicing this good, wholesome moral conduct, should there need to be rebirth, he says that there's two places, either the heavenly realm or the human realm in a family that is well off. And keep in mind that the Buddha never used this as a dangling carrot in order to convince people to learn and practice his teachings. He never used guilt, shame, or fear or any rewards of any future rebirth in order to convince people to practice his teachings because learning and practicing the Buddha's teachings and attaining the result means that there is no rebirth. So he's not aspiring to teach people to crave a better rebirth, but instead he's interested in helping people who seek guidance to eliminate the whole cycle of rebirth through eliminating discontentedness. So he also wouldn't use guilt, shame, and fear because that is discontentedness. He wouldn't use discontentedness in order to help people eliminate discontentedness. So that's why he never used guilt, shame, and fear to try to motivate people. He also never used the alluring rebirth of a future life to convince people to practice his teachings because neither of those things are what he's interested in. He's not interested in continued discontentedness in the world, and he's not interested in seeing beings continually be reborn. So this is a teaching just to help you see that should you not attain enlightenment in this life, but yet you're practicing these teachings, then when you die, if you're not attaining enlightenment in this life or at death, that there is going to be an improved destination because you're walking the straight way, you're walking the upright way, you're practicing the good way and practicing this good moral conduct. So let's see if you guys have any questions here on this chapter. Seems that uh, no more questions for the literature. All right. So we move through those last couple of chapters a little bit expeditiously, which is fine, but I just like to be sensitive to all of your time. I know that you tend to kind of dedicate about two hours to these classes. So I like to try to keep them within reason, you know, hour and a half to two and a half hours without going excessively over. But a lot of these chapters, they have these descriptions. So you can read those explanations and see what questions you guys have. And if there's things that you guys aren't getting answered in these classes, remember that you have 
posting in the Facebook group. You can send me a private message and you can also schedule personal guidance in order to get any specific questions or more details that maybe we don't have time to dive into in these classes. And that's very normal that after a particular class that maybe students need to come talk to the teacher privately. If we were in a physical setting where all of us were in the same classroom and I ended class, some of you guys might choose to come up to me after class and have additional questions based on the class that we just had. So feel free to use posting in Facebook, private message or scheduling appointments to follow up and get more depth if that's what you're looking for in any of these particular topics or anything that's going on in your practice that you need help with. So next week, we will be studying the next series of chapters, 51 through 60. These deal with rebirth. And when you look at them, you'll see that the Buddha is kind of today in these chapters, we're talking about gamma. And then it kind of this book leads into rebirth because it's our gamma that produces certain results in our life. And one of the results is potential rebirth. So thank you all for joining for today's class. Feel free to read those chapters and the explanations. Come to class with any questions that you guys have on Saturday. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be in chapter two, which is the chapter on why study Gautama Buddhist teachings. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be in part two of our four part series on loving kindness meditation. So I'll see you guys either Sunday, Wednesday or next Saturday. We'll see you then. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.